We've had a mighty big prayer list, prayer list the last few weeks. I'm glad it slowed down some. I hope. First Corinthians chapter 13 is where we are. Uh, last week we considered the prominence of love. Uh, I'm not finished with that yet uh, because it is such an important matter. I think it's important to uh, go over all the. Uh, necessities of love, what it is, what the Lord expects from us. Uh, I'm going to use the English Standard Version, excuse me, for the first seven verses. I think it's just a little bit easier to uh, digest um, in uh, these particular verses, so uh, I don't normally do this, but sometimes I will. Uh, Anyway, um, we went over the first three verses last week uh, to some degree. Paul said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, um, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, kind of an irritating noise, really, when you stop to think about it. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, well, I am, I am nothing. The, the greatest gifts that were given to men were the gifts he's talking about. Uh, prophetic powers, in my opinion, would be the highest one of all. Uh, the ability to uh, foretell uh, future events as well as reveal the rest of God's will that hadn't been revealed yet. And it, But as important as that is, he said, if I don't have love for God and for my my brother or sister in Christ especially, then possessing that power, well, it's just not going to do me any good because in reality I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, uh, I know a lot of people who are very generous with what they have. They give large sums of money uh, to the church to be used for church purposes, uh, large sums of money, a lot more than I could ever give. Uh, And as great as that is, if I have not love, Paul said, well, I gain nothing. Uh, These are uh, what we would consider, I suppose, the greatest gifts people possessed. But uh, without love, it just is meaningless because, as we know, love is the most important of all. One thing I've been told many times through the years, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. That, uh, that statement, uh, I, I was accused of not being a loving person uh, by uh, some folks, uh, one in particular. And if he said this to me one time, he said it to me 50 uh, constantly. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. It really bothered me. Until, you know, I, I gave it some consideration and, and understood uh, the fallacy of the argument. Uh, the ideal is, 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 is when you care about someone, you basically, you overlook everything. You, you, uh, you major on minors and minor on majors. You, you avoid the, uh, the ugly sermons, for example and you deal with uh, the kinder and gentler kind of sermons. Well, everybody wants to do that. I mean, I want to do that. 
uh, I'd rather deal with the kinder and gentler sermons, but more than I want to do that, I, I want to help everybody get to heaven, which means uh, we need to know what we need to know. And I try to figure out what we need to know, and that's what I major on. Well, to some people, that looks like not caring, but I, I disagree. The question is, what does it mean to care? To care is to love. Uh, to love like God commands us to love. Uh, not the kind of love we always think of when we think of love, but what the Lord is talking about. And that, of course, comes down to the word agape, which, uh, which is a sacrificial kind of love uh, demonstrated first by God himself. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Those aren't just words. That was a real life action. Uh, God's love for us, his desire for us to be able to have fellowship with him was so great that he decided before he even created mankind, he decided that Jesus would lay down his life. That one of the Godhead become man and lay down his life for people who mostly detest him. But there was those faithful few that he talks about that God was aware of. And because he knew that the faithful few would love him and walk with him. The Father and the Holy Spirit allowed Jesus to become man, live, and die at the hands of man. That's what love is. It's sacrificial. It puts the well-being of others before its own well-being. It's willing to put itself out for the sake of others. It's one of the most, it's one of the most amazing acts that ever occurred throughout history because it didn't have to happen. It, that's what the most amazing part of all to me. It didn't have to happen. All God had to do was say, I forget it. Let's not create man. Let's just skip the whole idea and move on to something else. But he didn't. He had a desire, a love for the faithful few that was so great that uh, one of the Godhead actually died so the faithful few could live. I don't, I don't know that we can really wrap our, our minds around it because it's, it's so incredibly unlike us. Uh, I know, even now, I know I, I couldn't have done that, uh, but God could. Uh, opposed by our fleshly nature, and this is the rub, this is the problem we have to deal with, and that is uh, the lust of the flesh, the eye, and the pride of life. Uh, there's, there's, there's one part of us that wants to walk with the Lord. There's another part of us that doesn't, just does not want to. And... Uh, one or the other is going to overtake the other and be victorious. Uh, we are, by nature, uh, covetous people. Uh, we, we lust for things. Uh, sometimes we lust for things that they're not wrong. When they're tampered, a lust for food. I like good food. Uh, I like it a lot. 
But if I coveted so much that it interferes with my God-likeness, uh, it becomes sin. It doesn't have to be sin, but it can become sin. Uh, sex is uh, something people lust for. It's, it's one of the most powerful urges uh, human beings have. At least that's what I learned in my psychology classes. Uh, it's supposedly the, the primary lust we experience. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, provided we can tamper our lust to, to our spouse in the bedroom, then no problem. But when we don't control ourselves, when we act on our lust in improper areas, it becomes sin. It can be good, but it can be bad, okay? And we have this, 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 this contest between what the flesh wants and what the spirit wants to do. I want to be good, but sometimes I want to be bad because lust can be that strong and it can overrule our, our minds, our hearts, the spirit, if we allow it to. The love of God uh, is what we need to develop. We don't have to develop uh, lust. It's a... Uh, it's a given. It's there. I'm not saying that all people lust the same amount for the same stuff. That's not right. But uh, we all have some sort of lusts that we have to contend with. And the Hebrews author, if you remember, he talked about the besetting sin in the first part of Hebrews chapter 12. We have a sin that so easily besets us, throws us off our game. Uh, this comes down to our lusts. Something in our nature wants something so badly that uh, it becomes a, an obstacle for us, a real obstacle. If we, if we falter, it's most likely going to be due to that particular lust. <clears throat> There's a great conflict in the battle that goes on within. It, it, boy, I tell you what, this is one of the best things I ever learned uh, when I was learning, as I learned, I should say. Um, was understanding uh, something about the battle between the, lust, the flesh and the spirit, rather. Uh, I, used to, uh, I used to think I was just a, a loser. There was no way I could ever be saved because uh, I was naturally evil. And it bothered me a great deal because uh, I didn't know if I could be saved or not. I didn't really consider myself to be godly at all because I wanted to do things that I wasn't supposed to do and I didn't understand why I wanted to do those things and it drove me nuts uh, until I ran across Paul and he helped me out so much. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 for example, I say then uh, walk in the spirit and if you do you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Uh, okay walk in the spirit, it's, it sounds easy but it's really not. Uh, I think of it, I think of it more as set your mind to walk in the spirit. It doesn't come automatic. I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. It doesn't come automatic just because I know it. That doesn't mean I do. I have to teach myself to love my neighbor as myself. 
Paleo love is natural. You fall in love with somebody and you get all googly-eyed and wishy-washy and mooshy. Um, that's, that's a natural thing. That's the flesh in action. But uh, when it comes to the kind of love God wants us to possess, we have to develop it. We have to learn it. Uh, and it, it's not that easy to do. Not really. Uh, not for me, it wasn't at least. But if I set my mind to walk in the spirit, I'm determined I, this is what I aim to do, uh, I'm not as likely to fulfill the lust of the flesh. When the flesh wants to do something that's not wrong, that's wrong rather, um, because I've set my mind to walk in the spirit, maybe I, I'm more likely to suppress the lust of the flesh. Not that I always will. But if I've set my mind to walk in the spirit, I'm determined that this is what I'm going to do. It's going to be easier for me to overcome lusts. I'm not going to be infallible. I'm talking about easier. Because I have a, I have a higher goal to attain. And unless the lust is extremely strong, uh, it's not going to be much of a contest. I'll overcome it because the mind can be more powerful than the flesh. For the flesh, it lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The two, the two are at odds with each other. God designed us this way. Uh, you stop and think it's God that designed the body, right? And God created the spirit. He created the body the way he wanted it to be. He created the spirit the way he wanted it to be. The flesh lusts against the spirit the spirit lusts against the flesh, there's a contest that's going to take place whenever a human being is born into the world. And the contest is going to be which one will dominate the other. Will it be the flesh overcoming the spirit or the spirit overcoming the flesh? The Lord wanted us to fight this fight. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about the Battle of Armageddon. And there were battles at Mount Megiddo. It was a historical battleground. But when you talk about the ultimate battle of humanity, I believe it's going to be the battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's going to be something each person must fight. And it's a very difficult battle. You know, it's easy to say, well, I'm a Christian and I don't sin. It's easy to say that. It's easy to say, I'm a Christian and I don't aim to sin. And I'm not going to let you know if I do, if I can keep from it. We always hide our faults the best we can, if we can hide it, if we didn't get caught in action. But every one of us knows we have to fight battles. And they can be so hard. And sometimes we fail. But when we do, we apologize to God. We get back up on our feet. We set our mind to walk in the spirit and once again, we try to overcome the lust of the flesh. But you know what? We'll fail again. And again. And again. Why did God make us this way? You know, we learn through victory, but we also learn through our failures. As we fail and as we repent, 
we're getting we're getting stronger spiritually. We're becoming stronger. We're better fighters. We learn ourselves. We learn our weaknesses. We learn how to know what obstacles are in front of us and avoid them whenever possible. This battle that we fight, we decide, I want to I wanna follow Jesus. That's a great decision. But when we first say it, we're very, very weak people, spiritually speaking. And we have to develop spiritual muscles. This is one of the ways we do. It's through the battle we fight internally. So just because I have lust that I ought not have, or just because I fail sometimes and give in to the lust, that doesn't mean I'm a loser. That doesn't mean I'm no good or that I'm bad. That means that I'm a typical person fighting my battles in life. And the Lord won't give up on us. But we can't give up on ourselves either. Because that's the tendency. I can never do this. I'm just not good enough. That's what I've heard it so many times. The flesh lusts against the spirit, spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. They're opposites. The fight is natural. So that you do not do the things that you wish. From the heart, I want to do thus and so. But the flesh wants to do something else. Sometimes what the flesh wants to do, it may not even be an evil thing. With my mind, I know there's something about the Lord's business that I need to tend to. I know I need to tend to it. But there's another part of me that really wants to go fishing. And after today, it's going to rain for the next two weeks. If I don't do it today, I don't get to do it. Even that's a battle. What will I do? Will I do what I know in my mind the Lord would have me to do? Or will I do what I want to do? And the battle's on. And one or the other is going to win. But we learn. And we get better. And stronger. And then when the bigger fights come, we're more prepared for those fights. David fought a bear and he fought a lion. Preparing him for the bigger fight with Goliath and preparing him for an even bigger fight with King Saul and then preparing him for even a bigger fight as being the king of Israel. All these things contributed to him becoming the man he was, a man after the heart of God. He had his bumps and we all know it, but he didn't give up. God loved him, and he loved God. In spite of all his faults, he had agape love. He really, really wanted to make God happy, and that's what he intended to do and worked at. Paul's personal battle with the flesh is recorded in Romans chapter 7. This is where I first had my eyes open to myself, uh, what was going on. Uh, I read it pretty regular because uh, I still need the bump it gives me. Let's look at what he has to say. In Romans 7, we'll just take out a few verses. Verse 15, uh, what I am doing, I do not understand. He's talking about the wrong stuff, okay? What, 
I don't know why I'm doing this. You ever had it? Kids do it all the time. Why'd you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, sometimes we do stuff and we don't know why we do it. We really don't know. I knew I wasn't supposed to, but I did it anyway. Why did I do that? Unless you've been trained by the Word of God, there's a very good chance you may not know, may not understand why you do what you do. What I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, <clears throat> what I've decided to do, that I'm not practicing. I decided to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. A person comes before the church and they ask for forgiveness in the prayers of the saints. We pray with them to God that God will forgive them. He does. They leave the building that they determined that they're not going to sin against God again. And maybe next week, here they are back again. I don't know why I do this stuff. I just don't know. What I hate, I do, and I don't know why. And that Paul was in that point and position. If Paul was in that position, it's not that surprising that we are as well. Verse 18, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Yeah, he means that when the flesh desires things we're not supposed to do, not the flesh in particular. To will is present with me, that's the mind, the love, the agape. But how to perform what is good, I just do not find. I, I, don't, I don't understand. The good that I will to do, that which in most cases the thing that I know the Lord would have me to do, I don't do it. I want to make God happy. But sometimes I know what the Lord would have me to do, and I don't do it. But the evil that I will not to do, that's the thing I practice. Why do we? We all done it. I mean, we don't talk about it, and we all think, well, I'm the only one in the room that's ever done stuff like that. No, you're not. Every one of us have done it. But we're not going to talk about it. Why? It's embarrassing. We don't want people to know all that stuff. But trust me, we're all guilty. The evil I will not to do, that's the thing I practice. Why? He's looking for an answer. I find a law. A law means a rule of conduct, okay? I find a law, a rule of conduct. There's something that drives me to do the things I do. Evil is present with me. Excessive lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. There's a, there's a temptation to do that which is not right in the eyes of God. This rule of conduct is, is there, and there's nothing I can do about it. The one who wills to do good, I have this in me, this, this unnatural craving for something, and I'm wanting to do good. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, that's the spirit. But I see another law in my members, that's the law of the flesh, and it wars against the law of my mind. With my mind, I know what I ought to do, but man, I really want to do this other thing. I really, really, really want to go fishing today. I know what God would have me to do, but I really want to go fishing. There's this, this rule of conduct 
this battle between the two, the spirit and the flesh. And it can be an intense battle. Well, that's why we sin. It's not because sin is bad, it's because it's good. It's pleasurable. It's exciting. It, it tastes sweet. Like the fruit Eve partook of. So sweet. And we want it so bad. But God said don't eat that fruit. I know he said don't eat it, but man does it look good. There's this war that takes place in all of us. It's a hard battle. It brings me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, what he's doing here is personifying sin. He's talking about sin as though it was a person. Sin dwells in his members. Okay, it doesn't dwell in his members. Sin is a transgression of law. We know that. But figuratively speaking, he's talking about sin being in his members. This desire to do something contrary to what the Lord would have me to do. He calls it sin. And sin is trying to bring me into captivity. And following that, of course, is death. He looks at it as a battle, a real fight. He's fighting. He's fighting for his life. And it's, uh, it's the same thing we all do. Agape, it's, uh, it was a badly needed lesson for the apostles. Uh, they didn't have agape love. <clears throat> Jesus taught them that they ought to agape God and agape their neighbor as their self. They heard him say it, but they didn't do it. They left everything to follow him. Oh, such great and godly men, yeah. But they didn't agape God, and they didn't agape their neighbor as their self. They were willing to follow the Lord, but that was the extent of their association with him. And he taught them lessons. Uh, one of the last lessons he taught, maybe the last on this subject, uh, is found uh, the night before he was uh, murdered. Uh, you remember the, the, the event. They went into the upper room to partake of the Passover feast and uh, while they were there uh, because nobody's feet had been washed which was customary practice whenever you enter a building a residence uh, Jesus took it upon himself to get a basin of water uh, a towel and he washed the apostles feet and then he dried them he took the, the robe of a, of a woman or the robe of a servant if a person had a servant in the home, the servant will wash visitors' feet. If they weren't able to afford a servant, a woman in the house would be responsible for washing a visitor's feet. So Jesus took on the role of the lowliest of all people, and he washed their feet. And uh, he, he, he sat down when he got finished. He didn't just wash their feet so they would have clean feet. It was a, a lesson that was involved. Some churches practice foot washing, and this is where they get it from. That's not the lesson Jesus was teaching. Uh, we don't wash people's feet today when they come to our house. 
that's got nothing to do with anything in our generation. Uh, but there's a principle at stake, and that's what we're supposed to take away from it. After the Lord sat down, he said to his apostles, do you know what I have done to you? Well, yeah, you washed our feet. And it was embarrassing. It was humiliating that you got down on your knees and washed our feet. Interpreting or misinterpreting the word of God is uh, what happens a lot of time. Uh, many people have misunderstood what the Lord's teaching here simply because they didn't give consideration to the spirit of the law, which is so vitally important. Paul, uh, Timmy, Paul said to Timothy in 2.15, be diligent, uh, spend great amounts of energy. Why, Paul? So you'll present yourself approved before God. Give it all you got. Set your mind to be the best you that you can be. A worker who does not need to be ashamed should we confront the Lord Jesus we know that every day there's a possibility that we might step right into eternity and come face to face with God's Son. Will we be ashamed when we face him or will we be able to stay on our feet? I don't know about looking him in the eye, but stay on our feet at least. Work hard to make sure that you're the kind of person who won't be ashamed when you stand before the Lord, one who rightly divides the word of truth. Understand what it is the Lord would have us to do. Some people read John 13 and they see a foot washing service. Other people read John 13 and they see a principle involved. One group's right, one group's wrong and they come away with either the right or the wrong knowledge. In Matthew 22 and verse 29, Jesus answered and said to the Sadducees, you are mistaken. They doubt, they d denied the resurrection. Uh, they give him a hypothetical case that we're all aware of. Uh, and he, you're mistaken. Your whole concept of the resurrection is just wrong not knowing the scriptures is your problem. If you understood the scriptures, you would have known that there is a resurrection and not knowing the power of God. You think it incredible that a woman could have seven husbands and go to heaven and the Lord wouldn't know how to deal with that woman. They did not have the knowledge and they didn't have an understanding of this being we call God. Now, the Sadducees were considered the elite among religious people. I know the Pharisees outnumbered them, and the Pharisees were very powerful, but the Sadducees were considered the elite. These were the uh, philosophers. These were the experts in the law. And Jesus, well, he's insulted them big time right here because uh, they held their nose high in the air. And they don't know the meaning of the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Understanding the meaning of the scriptures is so important. So many times, and I know you all 
catch it because I catch it. So many times preachers are talking about something and they've completely taken it out of context. And we know that they do not understand the meaning of what they're talking about. They're not bad people. They're very wonderful people. But they've yet to understand the meaning of the text they're reading aloud. It happened, you recall, with Apollos when Aquila and Priscilla had to take him aside and explain to him what was happening in Christianity. Not knowing the meaning of a text and being found out can be very embarrassing. I've been embarrassed more than once where somebody would explain the text to me after I butchered it. That's some kind of years ago when that happened, but it happened. Uh, understanding the text, so important. You call me teacher and Lord. You say, well, speaking again to his apostles, it's true. But so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought. Ought means there's an obligation there. You're obligated now. Jesus washed their feet, and you and I are obligated to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Uh, wash one another's feet. Again, it's not literal. It's figurative. Okay. What, what's he talking about? Making myself less than you. Becoming a servant for you. Rather than waiting on you to serve me. It's my obligation to serve you because Jesus gave us an example and now I'm obliged to follow that example of making myself a servant to you. Well, you think about everything that's involved. If I feel that way towards you, well, I, I can't have the big head. I'm not going to look down on you I'm not going to be critical of you if you come to me and you tell me something that may have happened in your life. I'm not going to be critical of you. I'm going to be kind and gentle. I'm going to do everything in my power to try to help you understand what you did, why you did it, and that most importantly, you can be forgiven. If you just ask God for forgiveness, I don't want you to be lost. I want you to be saved. I don't want to expose you. I want to cover you. Because that's what it means to be the servant to you. And the bad news is, you're supposed to be a servant to me. <laughs> you got to feel that way towards me. It's very important. It is not about washing feet. It never was. Unfortunately, it's misunderstood. It's about serving one another. That's the thing to learn. That's hard. It's very hard. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent 
greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, because if you do them, heaven will be your home. I believe with all my heart, if we can agape God and agape our neighbor as ourself, we're going to heaven. I think don't I think the, I think the thing that would stop us from going to heaven is a failure on our part to learn to agape one another, to love one another. That would be the greatest obstacle of all. Any sin would be a violation of law. But if I agape God and I do commit sin, which I will, I'm going to ask God to forgive me of it. I'm not going to try to bury it out of sight and forget about it. I want to step up to the plate and do what the Lord would have me to do, come what may, because I need his love, because I love him. Blessed are you if you do them in a context he's talking about serving one another. The apostles didn't love one another, not like Jesus was talking about. Peter may have thought, well, I ain't washing these guys' feet. Let them wash my feet. I'm going getting the keys to the kingdom. Let them serve me. He wasn't going to serve them. Don't have to, ain't going to do it. Well, that was the wrong attitude if that's the attitude he had. Because it was the opposite of what he was supposed to learn to do. He learned it. Through a hard trial, he learned it. That's where we learn most of our big lessons is through a hard trial, an embarrassing situation, a time when we loathe ourselves for being such a failure. But we learn, and we come out better than we went in. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14, the apostle says, Let all that you do be done with love. And throughout Paul's writings, we're taught to pursue love, go after it, make a decision. I'm going to learn to love like the Lord wants me to love. I'm going to put some time in on it to put on love like you would a garment. Cover yourself in it. Increase and abound in love. Just because I love some today, I can love more even tomorrow. As time goes on, love increases. And be sincere in love. Don't be a phony. Don't feign love when it's not really there. Be unified in love as a body with several members. Be fervent in love. Feverish in love. Very important. And then stir up love in one another. It's my job to help Jimmy learn to love. It's his job to help me learn to love. In the, in the Hebrew chapter 10, when we're told in verse 24 to stir up one another unto love and the good works, one another means back and forth. Sometimes we think about a preacher or a teacher. It's his job to stir us up. No. It's our job to stir up one another. It will, it's like singing. When we sing to God, it's not, uh, what do you call it, a choir? It's not a choir that's supposed to sing. It's each person is supposed to sing. Each Christian is supposed to sing to one another, teaching 
one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. As we sing, it works backwards and forwards. It's not for one group just to sing to us, but we are to teach one another as well. And that's what takes place when we worship God in song. Uh, love does these things because love wants so badly for all of us here at Center Grove to go to heaven. You know, we all want our families to go to heaven, don't we? We want our spouse and our children. We work hard to make sure that they're prepared to meet God. Well, a church is just a bigger family. And that same kind of love is supposed to exist between us as well. Okay, I wore love out. Let's go on to the qualities of love. There's 15 altogether uh, that's going to be pointed out. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable, easily irritated. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Oh, he finally failed. I'm so happy to see that he sinned. Love rejoices with the truth. Truth always prevail. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, not all good things, not every silly little thing. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love is very powerful. Now, I didn't spend no time on those traits because we need to study them for our individual selves. I need to learn to, to try to be uh, a possessor of all those qualities and characteristics. And that takes a lifetime. Okay, it's time for me to stop. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll continue with verse 8.